millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. My name is David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And this is Everybody, everybody Sucks. Sucks. The podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do, but the truth is, in the beginning, everybody, everybody sucks. sucks. Everybody sucks, man. Everybody does. Everybody sucks. And today we have a wonderful artist, Audi, formerly known as Crystal Lieb. Audi has charted top 20 on Billboard Country Radio, earned more than 5 million streams and multiple award nominations with her country duo, Sons of Daughters. She has showcased on Scott Borchetta's TV show, The Launch, where they were mentored by Nikki Six and Dan Huff. Unbelievable. She's performed for and made fans out of the rock legends ACDC. I don't know if anyone's ever no heard. No big deal. Yeah, ever heard about this band? Um, she's fronted Dave Rave Ogilvy's industrial pop project Jackalope. She's collaborated with numerous Grammy-nominated songwriters, but one thing she's never done in her varied music career is go solo. So this will be an interesting discussion of her journey today. Wow. Audi, thank you for thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So good to have you here. Wow, I feel so accomplished after hearing you read that out loud. Well, you know, I wrote it. I spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really great to have you here. So, Audi, give us a sense of where you came from. Where did you come from and what kind of place was it? Well, I'm from North Vancouver, British Columbia yeah. in Canada. I kind of got my start in music as a kid. You know, I watched Disney and all that kind of stuff. And I knew right away at a very young age I wanted to be a singer. And my parents couldn't shut me up. And then I think it was like my 10th birthday, they took me to see The Phantom of the Opera. And oh, nice. they couldn't get me out of the theater. Like, I was bawling. Aww. It was like... Just could not leave. I was so devastated and so moved by that. And that kind of just skyrocketed my love and drive and passion for music. Was there a lot of music like in North Vancouver for you? I mean, when I was a kid, I joined uh, a 60-piece choir and oh, wow. we put on big productions. We did like Joseph and the Multicolored Dream Code and yeah. all that. And we would tour all throughout BC. Really? Um, and then I was in choirs in high school. Fun fact, I failed choir in high school because yes. it was like the easy course that I kept skipping. So, yeah. Isn't that the funny thing about going to school is like the one thing you think you're going to kill at, you just don't bother anymore? I know. I was a degenerate. I mean, I was living on my own and working a full-time job for the last bit of high school for a grade 11 and 12. So Holy moly. 
Uh, choir was not on the top of my list to attend. By the end of high school, were you still in choir? Were you doing like no? Band, I like guess band stuff? I I stopped choir uh, at the age of fourteen, and then at the age of sixteen, I met a guitar player, and we started playing like local coffee shops and stuff, like cover gigs and that kind of thing, and we formed a band. And I think at the age of like eighteen or nineteen. I was living in a house with four dudes and we formed a band called The Perfect Strangers. We were like, we thought we were Led Zeppelin reincarnated. Of course. And, (laughs) yep. As as everyone does. Oh, yeah. We did. Yeah. We we were debaucherous and out of control, but it was a lot of fun. We breathed and slept and drank Perfect Strangers. Our band had all our instruments like set up in the living room and that's all we did. We just like played and wrote music. Who was like influencing the band? Like musical influence? Yeah, like, Led like, Zeppelin. Like, 100%. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So you thought you were Led Zeppelin because you were Led Zeppelin. 100%. Oh, yeah. We uh, covered Dazed and Confused and Babe, I'm Going to Leave You. And yeah. When you decided to start this band, were you at this point like, this is my thing? Yeah. Or was this kind of just for fun? Oh, no, this was my thing. So at what point did it become your thing? I think at the age of 16. I was playing live as much as I could. I had no aspirations to be anything else like I didn't go to college or university like all my well-behaved good friends did I moved into a house with four dudes and played rock and roll music what was that like at 16 17 I mean that's a kind of a wild time to be like living with dudes oh we were saints (laughs) yeah it was the opposite of debaucherous yeah yeah yeah, it was um it was I don't know safe safe yeah healthy healthy there's bible study and were you guys like, we're going to play the big stadiums and everything? Like oh, that? yeah. Our entire life revolved around our band. We lived together. We toured together. We wrote everything together, which I'll never do again. That dynamic is out of control when you're in a five-piece band and there's five chefs in the kitchen and you're all trying to write a song. Yeah. It's it's a nightmare. But, oh, yeah, and we'd have band meetings and, you know, we'd drink tequila and dream big and put it together and we went out of control. Nobody sucked. Nobody sucked. Nobody no sucked. one sucks at that no. time. Everyone thinks they're like, they're killing it. I'm pretty yeah. sure we're about to play proof that we sucked. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is that like the perfect segue into it? Should oh, we try it? And I was by far the worst. Really? Do you oh, think so? Yeah. There's I, no way. Oh no, I was the weakest link. Whoa. 100%. Okay. I think let's roll the ugly. Hit us with the, the catchphrase. Embrace the suck. Here we go. Such Led Zeppelin vibes right now. The Ang. 
Like, <laughs> I see your pained expression right now. <laughs> this is. I feel like we're gonna have to describe Why people's I faces. I see this? you are huddled. You are literally huddled in a corner right now. Like hugging yourself. Oh my gosh. All right. Yeah. Tell it. What is your take on this? When you hear back, what are the feelings that are coming up right now? God. I am just so not that person anymore. Mm. It's such a trip. Like, I don't recognize my voice. I don't recognize the energy. I mean, I was pretty much blackout for that whole period of my life. Anyways, I... Oh, I, really? Well, yeah, we partied pretty yeah. hard. I'm not going to lie. Fair. Yeah, That's we. Fair. it was... The angst was a lifestyle. I mean, I'm just like, can she please stop screaming at me? Like, that's <laughs> all I could think of. And that's all I did. I just screamed. I did recently. I had someone take my vocals out of some of these tracks because some of the Perfect Stranger um, instrumental recordings are actually really freaking good. Like mm-hmm. my, I'm still to this day, um, I commend my band. I oh, they are such great players. Um, and I was just freaking screaming over all the music. It wasn't tasteful at all. You know, it wasn't like this could be a solo, this could be a little yeah. instrument part, this could be a break. Like, it just, it was just constant. And I don't know, one, why I never got fired, and two, why, like, why they still like me. Like, I would have, I would have punched this person. So, <laughs> I would have kept you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I would have definitely kept you as lead singer. I will, I will say, just, just, just for the listeners, that I did see Perfect Strangers play live. Did you? Yeah, really? I what did. venue? I, it was for anyone who's listening to North Fan. It was down in Lower Lonsdale. It was uh, you guys played at one a hall. Oh, it might have been Ceiling, but it was you used to play with Headwater. Remember the Headwater yeah. Boys? And Crystal was a show person, like a show woman, and she still is. But still is. if I could answer that question, why they kept you? It's because you commanded the audience. Did that come naturally? I think so. I didn't think about it, and thank you for saying that. Oh, that's very kind. That's okay. I never thought twice, I, and I still don't. When I get on stage, I I just do. Do you remember where the song came from? Or was it just like too much tequila, pissed off at the world kind of stuff? No, I really felt for my boyfriend who was in the band at this time. Because here I am mm. writing a song about how debaucherous and out of control I am and can't be held down. And that like really no one needs a girl like me. And then this poor guy <laughs> had to play that song. <laughs> and he's like, I love you. <laughs> he's like, oh, she's not wrong. Oh, but, no. Uh, no, I mean, I was angry. I, I mean, looking back at it, I've I've had different phases of anger. I think overall, I've always had a lot of fun in everything that I do. I kind of credit my mom for this. She can make light and fun of any situation. Mm. You know, so I've always had that gift thanks to her. But I mean, I I didn't have an easy upbringing. Again, I was living on my own when I was 16 and I yeah. working a full-time job and finishing high school and you know there's a lot of substance abuse and you know and like a lot of artists I've always kind of felt like I don't belong and I'm out of place and a lot of things didn't make sense to me in society and trying to interact with people I just Mm. a lot of times I'd be like what this doesn't make sense to me so I think that came out in my music a lot I mean listening to that song too I didn't know how to write a song. I don't know if you've looked back at songs you've written and looked at the lyrics and like that makes zero sense. Like that is just gibberish on paper. There's <laughs> absolutely no direction. There's no story. It's just I think at the end of the day, I'm just trying to make things rhyme, really. And uh, <laughs> but that song was just it, it just spoke directly to 
um, feeling like I don't belong and, and no one needs to, ha- to have to deal with someone like me. So at the time that you wrote it, did you just bring it in with lyrics done or was it just like everyone sitting around in a room riffing, et cetera, et cetera, or how? So the band typically wrote the same way every time and we would NAL practice studios in North those. Vancouver, yes. which is, it was still to this day, one of the most badass rehearsing studios. It was I've, sick. It was a, a warehouse that had about maybe 14 rooms, 10 to 14 rooms mm-hmm. in it. Um, each room had a great PA system and a drum kit. And you, at that time, you were renting it for like 10 bucks an hour yeah. or something. Uh, so we would all go in there and uh, the band would just jam. And that was one beautiful thing with this band is there was just musical chemistry. Um, it's one thing I kind of, maybe the one and only thing I miss about being in a band is those epic jams and yeah. that tunnel you all enter. And it's like, you know what each other's, thinking and feeling and where they're going to go without having to say it, like just really magical musical moments happened in that band. Um, So they would just jam and I would just sing whatever came to mind and write it down. And we had a, what are they they called? Tascam? We had like a four Mm -hmm. four track Tascam uh, cassette recorder. I don't remember those. They were like these little. Is that what you recorded this on? No, this was done in an actual (laughs) studio. That's that's pretty good. Very impressive. (laughs) I will say though that these little four track gray uh, cassette recorders and they had like the floor mics, they sounded pretty good. And I have a garbage bag full of probably hundreds of, um, of our rehearsals that we recorded. And oh then I just gosh. listen back to it and and write. That sounds like kind of like old school, how bands worked in the old days, you know? Like you hear stories of like, I don't know, Led Zeppelin, like they just sit in studios for like two weeks, like jamming and mm. just riffing and like the band and Pink Floyd and all those old school bands. That's how they did it. Yeah, it was a family. I mean, you lived together, you worked together, you, you fought, know, fought you, together, you too. fought together, yeah. you did drugs together, you yeah. drank together. It was a culture. I, yeah. I, I'm interested to think this is just like pondering, but I want there. I mean, there must be bands out there still doing that, but I feel like that culture is less and less appreciated now. Like that, that I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe because I'm so out of touch with like what young kids are doing in bands <laughs> and stuff, but I don't hear of it. You know, especially being in Nashville, though, it's such a song um, writing town. True. So I feel like there's maybe two key members, one or two key members that write the songs for the band and then they bring it. Yeah. I remember being approached by a producer in The Perfect Strangers who kind of suggested that we do that. They're like, oh. it's quite clear that the band is just jamming and you're singing whatever over it. Um, we think that you guys need to kind of do it the opposite, like create parts for the vocals and work around it. You know, like uh, here in Nashville, I, how I would approach a band is with pretty much a, a finished song, whether yeah. it's just on the piano or a demo recording or, yeah. you know, guitar, and then the band will add, you know, their gifts to it. Mm-hmm. As a accomplished songwriter now, do you look back on that time and notice things you were learning from a songwriting standpoint? no. I sucked as a song, like I really sucked as a songwriter. And even like listening back to my singing there, I sucked at singing, but I was even worse at writing songs. And that honestly didn't change until I met Jimmy Thau in Sons of Daughters. When I met a songwriter, 
you know, and uh, I learned so much from him. It was just a different approach. Like I, like I said before, uh, singing was just an emotional release and it, it wasn't intellectual. So the lyrics would like the lyrics were just part of that emotional release then basically, right? Yeah. So walk us through how you transition from Perfect Strangers to Jimmy Thao. Is there more stuff in between? Like where do you go after Perfect Strangers? Yeah, long story short, after the Perfect Strangers, I was in a few other bands that it really didn't do much. And then I moved to a place called Kelowna in BC. It's wine country, beautiful, smaller mm. town. Um, and I started my first solo project. I call it the Crystal Lee Band. It was so creative kind of showcases my lyrical talent right there. I mean, it was accurate. <laughs> so yeah, it's not wrong. Event, Very literal. Write what you know. That's what they say. I mean, I, I was, it was five to six years later. I had matured a bit. I will say that period of time in my life was the most debaucherous I'd ever been. Um, definitely. Corona uh, can do that. It was a high note for sure. Or an extreme low note. Uh, the songs made a bit more sense. It was piano-led, more like an Elton John, still had a classic rock kind of vibe to it. And then after that, I got scouted out by the owner of 604 Records, which is Nickelback's record label, and Jackalope, who we had mentioned at the beginning of this interview, uh, which is Dave Rave Ogilvy's pop industrial project. And for listeners out there, Dave Rave Ogilvy worked with Nine Inch Nails, uh, Skinny Puppy. He's kind of like one of the godfathers of industrial music. He was looking for a new singer. I went back to Vancouver, audition, got the gig, and I was in Jackalope for about five years. Again, I can't listen back to that music. The music's so cool. I'm the weak link. It's just... Interesting. It's just not great. It's not as bad as Perfect Strangers, but same thing. Just I couldn't wrap my head around songwriting, about actually intelligently putting together my feelings and thoughts and experiences in a storytelling manner. I just, I don't know why that was so complicated for me. And then when Jackalope broke up, I ran into Jimmy Thao, uh, who was lead man of another band um, during the Perfect Stranger days that we used to play like a local circuit together. And we just got together and he's like, I'm a songwriter and that's what I do. And he was the guy that's obsessed with, with, songwriters you know he would hear a song and that he loved and buy the cd and open the booklet and see who produced this who wrote this study the lyrics study how the cadences of the lyrics the phrasing the rhyme schemes like he studied songwriting um and so i learned a, a lot from him you know because we we went on for a decade to write songs together and moved to Nashville. Th is this the point where you really like understood that there's a thing like songwriting as an art as opposed to like just saying what's on your mind? Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know a culture like Nashville existed yeah. where there were professional songwriters writing for other people. Not to say I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know the magnitude of it, Yeah, you know, and coming down here and being in rooms with songwriters who aren't artists and being absolutely blown away by their lyrical genius, you know, and getting to witness or experience their approach to songwriting. Um, yeah, that changed my life. Can you talk a little bit about your Jackalope time? Like, like, were you guys playing pretty big shows and stuff like that? Yeah. Jackalope, Jackalope was such a whirlwind because I was just an indie artist who was playing little clubs in Kelowna, 
Um, I got signed to Jackalope on a major record label. We were a 604 and Universal. I was the second singer, so Jackalope already had a built-in fan base. Mm-hmm. Kind of fun fact with Katie from... Uh, nice Horse. Nice Horse, which yep. is a Canadian country oh, band. cool. Future yep. episode. Oh, definitely, Pot- yeah. Potential future episode. Uh, so they already had a built-in fan base, um, which was an interesting experience, having to fill someone else's shoes in a band, especially when yeah. we were nothing alike. You know, she had a very pop-forward, soft voice, and I come in with the girl that screams into microphones. And But we had a really cool following due to Dave's involvement in music. You know, Trent Reznor was on one of the tracks and Monster Magnet. So we had this, like, underground industrial kind of goth following. So all of a sudden, I go from playing these tiny venues to playing still club shows, but sold out club shows all through America and Canada. You know, I literally went from nobody knowing me to being able to just hop on a stage and go on tour and have people show up. And because I'd never experienced anything like that, I didn't know that that was rare. Hmm. You know, that's that I, hmm. I was like, here I was at like 24, 26 years old. Oh, this is what happens when you get signed. You just get signed and the machine spits you out and magically people show up to your shows you know like it was just so crazy i'm interested about this idea that there was another singer before you i would find that really difficult to step into shoes like was there pushback or was it more just like oh no this is our new singer there was definitely like pushback i mean this was a long time ago this was like 2009 to like 2011 so there wasn't it's not like today where you go on Instagram and you can just get berated and criticized right. and, um, you know. The fun part. The fun part. So it, it, we, I would, I would, the most negativity I could witness online was like YouTube, you know, when we released our music videos and stuff. And some people were like, comments, this chick sucks or whatever. But I uh, miss the old chick. Yeah. But, the, but I've also, I've never been affected by that. I just haven't. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me. You know, there were also people that were like, "I love her voice. This is amazing." So, I can imagine that'd be very challenging. Well, today the access to insulting people, the access to criticizing people today is is so profound. You came up in a time where there was limited. It wasn't like you didn't get criticized, but it wasn't as profound as it is today. It probably hurt more back then in, in retrospect for some people because the negative criticism was coming from actual actual like journalists. Like if you were going to read feedback on your band, it was like in a magazine or in the newspaper. Yeah. Right? So right. that hurts because, you know, you want to be able like, Mom, I, my band's printed in the Georgia Strait. And then if they're like, this band needs to disband do you remember any bad reviews like do you remember reading anything that was like that must be a crazy moment i I was lucky we got published in a few newspapers and everyone was kind so that was good yeah that'd be painful hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So you go from Jackalope to Sons of Daughters. Correct. So you meet Jimmy Thau in the sort of the latter stages of Jackalope. Yeah. And then you and Jimmy begin this band, whom I adored. Sons of Daughters were, were so good. Give us a sense of your, your travels to Nashville. Full disclosure, we have talked about this personally before, but I think people would really like to know about you coming down to Nashville with Jimmy. Yeah, Sons of Daughters, it just grew legs of its own. And I feel like we were never able to really catch up to what was going on around us. It was it was a shit show, and it was amazing and awful and and something I would uh, not take back ever. But um, Jimmy and I, in our first meeting together, our first co-write together, we ended up writing like three songs, and we were just kindred spirits from from day one. We just were cut from the same cloth. We partied really well together. Uh, Jimmy worked for a motorcycle company back then, and he used to take home like new motorcycles every day, and we'd go for rides and motorcycle trips, and it, mm. it, was, it was just a blast. We connected... Um, we had a deep connection very quickly and a chemistry with our voices that we noticed right away that I've never experienced before or since, where when the first moment we sang together, it was it was shocking. Wow. We were like, what is this? And people commented on that for years to come. There's something about your voices. And you, you all can't see that Frankie's wearing an ACDC shirt. But that I am. I love it so much. ACDC was played a part in um, the upward trajectory of Sons of Daughters. So Jimmy and I had been together for about a year and a half. We'd been writing songs, performing locally, and we had a mutual friend uh, named Mike Fraser, who is ACDC's mixer, and I believe he's produced some tracks, and he's worked with Metallica and just amazing rock bands, Joe Satriani and whatnot. And so he had ACDC over to his manager's house for a dinner. So it was Mike Fraser, his manager is also a dear friend, and a few members of the band, uh, Brian Johnson and Cliff. And we were invited just to come hang out with the band and play some songs for them. And it was an incredible night. Were you nervous? Yeah, definitely nervous. I mean... Did he tell you? Like, did he say ACDC's over here? No, we got asked. Yeah, we, we got a call from Mike's manager that said, I'm having the band over for dinner. You cannot tell a soul. This is in North Vancouver. It's a, a small area outside of Metro. And they said, you cannot tell anyone, but we really want you to meet the band. We really want you to perform for them. And so we went. And we, I mean, of course I was nervous because there's, there's that whole like anticipation of like, when's ACDC going to drive up the driveway, walk through the front door. But from the second they walked in the front door, all nerves were gone. Because they were so friendly, so outgoing, um, so funny, you know, and um, normal people. In my mind, you think it's ACDC, and then you realize, oh, you're just an awesome guy. And we, I remember one funny thing is we were all sitting around the dinner table, and Brian Johnson made us all sing the Canadian anthem before dinner. <laughs> it was so, <laughs> it was so funny. I, he was just like, oh, I love it here. It's the fucking trees. Like, and the- You're the best band I've ever <laughs> <Yeah>. heard. <laughs> he, and they made us sing so many songs. We sang one song for them and they're like, we like we love it so much. And we used a quote that they said that night where your voices sound like you came from the same womb. And that was in our mm. bio. And they told Mike to, you know, you need to record these two. Like definitely let, make this happen. So 
Thanks to that night, we were in the Armory Studios and we recorded our debut EP called Pick Your Poison. And I remember the bass player of ACDC calling Mike, asking if we could send him a copy of the CD, which is just so crazy. Was this, do you think this was like a turning point for the band? Like, was this validation for you guys? It was massive Mm. validation. Like, one of the biggest rock bands in the world liked our band. It was unreal. I think it was hard to comprehend, you know? It was hard to process the caliber of... Mm-hmm. that compliment but man did it open doors for us you know because we had the pictures and the quotes and the story and and the validation and we had a champion at SOCAN um, which is a, a PRO um, rights association in Canada is, is the equivalent like ASCAP, and, ASCAP and, yeah, yeah, all that stuff, yeah we had a champion there who just said you guys need to go to Nashville like we let me get you in at the SoCan house, let me set up some meetings for you, and go. And I think we were on a, oh no, we drove. We drove my little 2005 Hyundai Accent 50 hours to Nashville, and then we were meeting with just with Universal and Warner, and at the time Olay, and it was just, we had never seen it. We had never been to a publishing house in our life. We didn't know this existed. We didn't know Music Row existed. We were supposed to stay 30 days. We stayed 90 because I think in the first 30 days of being in Nashville, we wrote 30 songs. And I don't even know in the year and a half of being in a band in Vancouver had we written 30 songs. Mm. So it blew our minds. And especially Jimmy as an aspiring songwriter was this is, you know, instantly this is where we need to be and we need to be here now. So we um, went back home. And we packed our bags and we made the move six months later. And the wow. rest was history. So you're here and you're writing. The band begins to do well in Canada. And you're not in Sons of Daughters today. It doesn't exist anymore. Do you want to talk about what ends up happening? or? Yeah, I mean, long story short, we we had... Jimmy and I loved each other very much. And we had a chemistry, but we had major creative differences. Um, and I think that was one really... S- kind of unique thing that made up this duo was our creative differences. The fact that Jimmy was more uh, pop forward and had his system or his approach to songwriting. And then I was the alternative loose cannon, <laughs> you know, but there was something about that because I would rein him in and he would rein me in. And then our, our vocal chemistry, it was unique. But I mean, we went through some major trials and tribulations and I found to be real We achieved so many amazing accomplishments, but I feel like we were never really able to truly appreciate them Mm -hmm. because there was so much discord and emotional chaos in the band. And and to be fair, neither Jimmy nor I were the best versions of ourselves for those years. So there was a lot of emotional and mental health chaos um, in the mix. So... Uh, as, it, as, it, as it happens with artists, right? And I would say that was my biggest regret was how not in the moment we were, especially for some of our biggest accomplishments and endeavors. You know, like we were Sirius XM's top of the country. We were mm-hmm. iHeartRadio's future stars. We opened for Luke Bryant and Kelsey Ballerini. We were number 13 on Billboard um, Canadian country charts. Like we... We had so much to be thankful for and excited about. And 
we were about to embark on our biggest festival run yet. Like we were currently on tour with Megan Patrick, who is a Canadian artist now living here in Nash- Nashville and kicking major ass. We were on tour with her and COVID started. And I have this hilarious picture of Jimmy and I on the plane because the, the tour, it, it first started like, oh, there's there's talk about, you know, this pandemic. Um, we should probably like not shake hands. Okay, now uh, now we're not going to be doing the meet and greets. Okay, merch is closed. Okay, now tour is done. Get home now. So we Ugh. got on the plane from Toronto, Ontario to Nashville, and we were the only ones on the plane, me and Jimmy, not one other person. We're like, is this the apocalypse? Ugh, that's so upsetting. It was such a trip, and... We came back and Jimmy decided to stay in Nashville and I decided to go home when things were shutting down. I just wanted to be close to family and stuff. And I know that the borders were closing and I just wanted to be, I wanted to feel safe. And then I didn't come back. I mean, I couldn't come back until about seven or eight months later. At that time, Jimmy was one of those stories who met the love of his life during the pandemic where they like met a month before the pandemic hit, moved in with each other during the pandemic, and they were engaged during the pandemic. So it was like a very unique and beautiful love story. And when I came back, um, I think the festival started uh, being rescheduled maybe a year later. And at that time, Jimmy just didn't want to go on the road anymore. You know, he'd met the love of his life He was becoming an established songwriter and producer, and we didn't have a ton of fun, you know? Why, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if I was to make any assumptions, why would he leave that for something less enjoyable, right? No matter what... uh, Because the road's hard. The road is hard, and and him and our dynamic was was challenging and he had just created a, a utopia for himself. I, I was hurt. It was, it was very, uh, I had made the band my life in, in that decade. And I was very excited to get back on the road and we didn't, we canceled all the shows as they were rescheduled and it felt like a hit, but in retrospect, it was the right decision because we're both in better places and I am just that person that will hold on even if it's not good for me. You know, I will stay in a situation that's not good for me longer. Um, I don't know if it's loyalty or stupidity or both, but uh, I do have him to thank for um, lighting a fire under my ass to do something that's better for me. Which is, explain. Which is. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's what I, absolutely. Tell us about Audi. So and what you're doing now. I was sitting here wondering because uh, Frankie and, and I share a mutual friend named Tom. And Tom... Future episode. Yes, I love that. Oh, this is so great. <laughs> uh, I was having, I think it was just a happy hour with Frankie and Tom. And I was just starting to embark on my solo endeavor. But I remember saying, I need a name. And I think it was Tom that mentioned, why don't you call it Audi? Like the first few letters of your last name. Mm. And I was like... I don't know about that. And now I'm like, yep, that's it. I don't know when I made the decision to to settle with Audi, but I do really like it. And it's it's my f- my first attempt at a solo project. And 
I feel like it's the right time. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've had a decade of, of songwriting under my belt now. I have yeah. no excuse to write songs that are crap Isn't like my past. Isn't yeah. it interesting going from the Crystal Lee band to Audi? Like, it's like, it's the, it's the mature professional reincarnation of that young woman in Kelowna. Yeah, and it's, I have a lot to write about. And I've gone through a lot in life and writing true, authentic music is the most important thing to me now. Um, I've not done that enough to know that it is the only thing I want to do, um, especially being in duo dynamics for 15 years prior and creatively compromising myself. And it was crazy because when Sons of Daughters ended, I was absolutely shocked and paralyzed with my lack of identity. You know, mm -hmm. I had been facilitating other people's dreams and visions for decades that when I was left standing on my own feet, I had no idea what I stood for. Um, and that was humbling and jarring. And it kind of propelled me into figuring out what it is I stood for fast. That didn't, it didn't sit well with me, you know. Right. Uh, it was your artistry wasn't being fulfilled, basically. Yeah. And, and, and then, yes, we did. Uh, one of the first songs I wrote um, as Audi was with Frankie and Tom. And it's going to be on the EP that's being released. What? Mm -hmm. I didn't know this. It, it is, is dark and beautiful. It's dark and um, beautiful. What, what is the project? How would you classify it? I think it's an alternative pop project. I have re-collaborated with my former producer, Dave Ogilvie. Oh, nice. And he has introduced me to his new partner um, in crime. Musically speaking, that's starting to sound incorrect. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> musical crime. I think we, I think we knew what we were uh, okay. We got it. A gentleman by the name of Anthony Fu Valkic. He's also one of the godfathers of industrial music. He's done things with Orgy and... He programmed for the Transformer movies. So he's a synth god. Mm. It was actually uh, really cool. One of my first creative adventures as a solo artist, uh, Dave and I um, were a part of a YSL Universal Audio Challenge where Universal Audio sent us some synths and a folder of samples and we had to create a song. And we also had to create three of our own samples. And it was like the old days. We met in a studio and we were there for a week and we didn't leave. We woke up, we made breakfast, we go to the studio, hot tubs at night. Like it was just amazing. And it was that family experience again. And it got a nationwide promotion through Exclaim magazine, which was really cool. And pretty much the process now is I write here in Nashville, you know, with my select few favorite songwriters and then I record a demo and I send that over to Vancouver to Dave and Anthony where they do all the synth programming mm. and um, that is kind of what's giving me my uh, signature sound which is this kind of 80s Juno Stranger Things kind of um, synth work. That's amazing. And then I take it back and we go into the studio with some uh, players that I'm obsessed with here that over the last decade of hiring different session players, I have my favorites and we put the live band to it and that's the process. 
You know, this is the big question of the show here. So be prepared. If you could give three pieces of advice to the young lady we heard. Baby Crystal. Baby Crystal. Young, angsty Crystal. What would you give? One of the first pieces of advice I would give is that quote, comparison is the thief of joy. I would really just beat it into my young self to not compare myself to mm. to really understand that there is absolutely no good to be had in that, that I am a unique little snowflake. And whatever I do is original. And whether it's good or not, it's a part of the process to to trust the process that not everything you do is going to be good and not everything you do is going to work out. Not to put any validation or self-worth in my accomplishments or failures, to accept myself for who I am. I would tell myself that drive, focus, practice, and clear vision will set you apart no matter what your talent level is. And that kind of ties itself into comparison. Because, yeah, maybe that person is a better singer than I am, but maybe their work ethic is worse. And one thing that sets two equally talented people apart is drive. So I would tell myself to stay driven. And the third piece of advice would be to lay off the sauce. Lay off the sauce. <laughs> I don't think that one needs any more explanation, does it? Lay off the sauce. Lay off the sauce, everybody. <laughs> well, Audi, we love the fact that you've been on here. You've been so honest. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're willing to share your story with so many people. I think it's been really inspiring. So for our listeners out there, where can we find you? Well, on social media or all um, platforms, it's It's Me Audi. And Audi is O-U-D-I. So what are you up to next? Um, I am in the final stages of completing my debut EP. So we are currently working on the last mix. And oddly enough, I am recording a U2 cover. Um, so this is going to be a six song EP. And then I'm going to also release as a single uh, U2 cover that I'm working on. So we're actually going to the studio tomorrow to lay those vocals down. That's amazing. Yes. And then it's just building the team. And putting together the live show, I am going to be presenting this as a one-woman show. So I'm building my tracks and pulling out the synths and the drum machines and the, the loops and putting together the live show and hopefully taking it to the streets. Let's get it in the streets. Then. Well, thank you so much, Audi, for being <laughs> yes, here. We, thank you. We've <laughs> just enjoyed this so much, uh, listening to you talk and, and your honesty and everything. And for our listeners out there, I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And this is... Everybody sucks. Let the trees, let the leaves fly away On the breeze, they make it look so easy Letting go And some things are meant to last Now the frost is on the grass I don't want to be here when it snows Rest in peace somewhere I'm changing color Sometimes you need to let it die We lie to each other Hide under the covers You can't see
Friends turn to friends like Friends turn to lovers and then They're strangers again Strangers again Strangers again